text for the sermon this morning comes from Psalm 2. Continue going through the book of the Psalms each month, uh, uh, working through one psalm, and uh, we've come to Psalm 2. And just to remind you that uh, this is part of the introduction to the book of Psalms. So it's both Psalms 1 and 2 making up an, an introduction to the five books of the Psalter. So let's hear God's word as we find it in Psalm 2. This is God's holy, inspired, and living word. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree that the Lord has said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Therefore be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. And serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. When his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. What would you be your response if you got arrested for speaking of the name of Jesus Christ and, and proclaiming the good news of his gospel? What would your response be if you were told to never say such things again? What would your response be if they let you go but warned you with severe threatenings Never to speak in the name of Jesus again, threatening you with a beating or even death. Perhaps you would cry out at the injustice of being arrested. Perhaps you would say that this is a violation of your freedom of religion. Perhaps you would be even emboldened in your faith. I think in the quiet moments after an experience like that, we could very well be afraid and discouraged. We could ask ourselves, is the gospel of Jesus Christ worth my very life? Is it worth physical suffering and pain? Is it worth the lives of my spouse or my children? Is the gospel really worth all that? Well, in Acts 4, the apostles Peter and John had such an experience. They were arrested for preaching Jesus Christ and were told with severe threatenings never to preach Jesus again. And their response to such threatenings was a response that the world could never hope to, to fathom or understand. The response to 
that was to pray to God for boldness. And specifically, they prayed for boldness using the words of our text. They prayed for boldness using the words of Psalm 2. Now, Psalm 2 is one of the uh, more frequently quoted psalms in the New Testament. The early church loved this psalm for the clear articulation that it gives of the kingship of Jesus Christ. They got much encouragement from meditating and praying through this psalm. I haven't looked at any of the polls on this, but I I think today uh, it's quite likely that Psalm 23 is the the favorite psalm of of the people of God. Psalm 23 is a beautiful psalm that that speaks of, of God's loving, shepherding care for his people. That though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, there our shepherd will still be with us. Psalm 23 is an encouraging psalm. But Psalm 2 should be an encouraging psalm for us as well. While Psalm 23 speaks of God being our shepherd, Psalm 2 speaks of God being our powerful and reigning king. You do not need me to tell you that we are living in the midst of a cultural revolution. The world has rejected the worldview of Scripture. The world has rejected the morality of Scripture. And the world has rejected the Christ of Scripture. And with each passing year, the hatred for Christ seems to grow and grow unbiblical and ungodly agendas that are are clearly against Scripture are advanced and promoted. And that growing rebellion to our Savior, to our King, can be greatly discouraging. We can be tempted to be afraid what this means for our families, what it means for our spouses, what it means for ourselves. At times, this discouragement and fear can affect our testimony of Christ where we're afraid to speak of the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We can be hesitant to speak the good news of the gospel because we think people, well, well, they're not interested in it or, or that they will be resistant to it. Psalm 2 gives us a place to take our fear and discouragement. Psalm 2 directs our eyes off of the opposition that we experience in this world to the gospel. And and Psalm 2 puts our eyes on the true reality of things. It reminds us that that Christ is king, that Christ is reigning over everything, and that Christ is victorious. And so we have no reason to fear if we remind ourselves of the truths that Psalm 2 talks about. If we remind ourselves that if we find refuge in Christ, we are blessed beyond measure. And so let's consider Psalm 2 this morning under the theme, Finding encouragement in the face of gospel opposition. Finding encouragement in the face of gospel opposition. It does not take a lot of searching 
to be able to see the opposition of the world to Jesus Christ. I've spoken before of Bill C-4 in Canada and what it says about conversion therapy. While we reject uh, many of the methods and means that secular psychology has used in the past to, to treat homosexuals, that piece of legislation does great damage to the freedom of the Canadian church to speak the light of the gospel to those dealing with sex and gender issues. We need to understand that Canada is not the only country dealing with such legislation. A very similar bill is being considered in West Lafayette, Illinois. And no matter which way that bill goes, we can expect more and more bills like that. Sadly, that's where our culture is. It is directly opposed to a biblical morality. And we have leaders in our government who have made it very clear where they stand in terms of their allegiance to Christ. They're directly opposed to the gospel. They're directly opposed to the truth that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father but through him. Living in such a world is discouraging. We see that opposition, and we can wonder, is Christ truly reigning? We need to understand that opposition to Christ, opposition to God, is not without precedent. In fact, ever since man was created, the devil has opposed God and his church. And David in Psalm 2 speaks of such opposition. David says that the heathen rage and the people plot a vain thing. You can imagine this opposition. You can liken it to a crowd listening to a man give a speech. The crowd does not like what the man is saying. And they start to mumble in opposition to what he's saying. And they start hearing other people agree with, with, with their opposition to what this man is saying. But the man keeps on speaking. And the people grow angrier and angrier until they're raging tumult, seeking to put this man to death, to kill him for what he has said. Such is the opposition of the wicked. It often starts with that quiet murmuring in the hearts, but it quickly grows to a raging public opposition to Christ. Now, last month we, we considered Psalm 1 and noticed how the blessed man is the man who meditates on the Word of God day and night. Those who oppose Jesus Christ do not meditate on his word, but instead meditate on their hatred of him. That word, uh, they plot vain things, is the exact same word for meditate in Psalm 1. They plot vain things. They scoff at the words of Scripture. They mock the antiquated law of God. Here we're reminded of Judas. Judas walked with Christ for Numerous years. But inwardly, we know he was not meditating on God's law. 
as Judas found out more about Jesus Christ and his mission, he got more and more dissatisfied. He got more and more disgruntled with what Christ was teaching and with who Christ was. And then he resorted to plotting with the scribes and Pharisees about how to portray, how to betray Christ. You need to understand, too, that the opponents of Christ have a certain vehemence about them. This anger is, is distinct from the anger against other religions, philosophies, or worldviews. And we see that in the, in the example of Christ. In Matthew 26, verse 59, we read that the chief priests, the elders, and all the council sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. The religious leaders of, of Christ's day hated Christ so much that they resorted to finding false witnesses to speak against Christ. That is true desperation. That is true hatred. The other example is that when Christ appeared before Pontius Pilate, Pontius Pilate offered to release either Jesus or Barabbas to the crowd. And he did that because he couldn't find any fault in Jesus. He knew Jesus was an innocent man. And he, he said, well, who would you rather have? Would you rather have Barabbas out there or would you rather have Jesus? And the people cried out, Barabbas. We want this robber. We want this violent man to be free rather than Jesus. And Pilate asked, well, what would you have me do with him? And, and they said, crucify him. And, and Pilate asks, well, he hasn't done anything. And the people cry out all the more, crucify him, crucify him. They hated Christ with a raging anger. The people plotted a vain thing against Jesus Christ. And we notice it's the kings and the rulers of this world that have especially set their hearts against Christ. It was Pharaoh who killed the baby boys in Egypt, when they were slaves there. King Herod killed the baby boys in the city of Bethlehem in an attempt to kill the infant Christ. And a different King Herod interrogated Christ. And when he did not respond to any of Herod's questions, he called upon his soldiers to mock Christ. And then Christ appeared before the governor Pilate, a ruler underneath Caesar, who valued his own position and fame over the rights of the king of kings. Truly, it is the rulers of this world and the kings of the earth who have set their hearts against Christ. Yet, amid the raging of the king's 
and the rulers, amid the plotting of vain things, we must follow the example of David in Psalm 2. When we see the opposition of the wicked to Jesus Christ, we need to follow the example of David. When David saw the opposition of the world, he asks the question, why? Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? Why is this the case? You might think David's naive in in asking that question. That David didn't really understand what the church was going through. That David didn't really understand the level of persecution that the world would would, uh, wage war against the church. But David certainly understood this question. David lived in a time when there were very real consequences to the world's opposition to the Lord. David was a man of war. His hands were stained with blood. And that is because the pagan nations around Israel were constantly trying to invade, constantly trying to persecute the people of God, constantly trying to stop the worship of the Lord. David fought them over and over and over again. And yet, David asks the question, why? Why do the wicked do this? Do they not know that such raging will amount to nothing? While David rightly asks the question, why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? God sits in the heavens laughing. That's a terrifying thing to imagine. But if the opposition of the world makes you fearful, or if you need boldness in your witness of Christ, be sure that you hear that laughter. Be sure that you hear that laughter. You see, the Lord ridicules the useless attempt of the wicked to overthrow his government. It is not so much as, as rise from his heavenly throne to respond to such futile attempts to overthrow him. Verses 4 through 6 of our text say that he who sits in the heavens, he who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. The Lord laughs because such attempts to overthrow him are utterly futile. A solitary ant has more hope of defeating a grizzly bear in combat than the nations have hope of overthrowing the reign of Christ. And if we are to be effective witnesses for Christ in this world, we must firmly believe this. We must know that Christ sits in the heavens and laughs at the attempts of the wicked to destroy the church. You hear the laughter of the Lord when men try to legislate the gospel away. Do you hear the Lord laughing at such attempts? Do you hear his laughter when Christ was crucified? 
The high priest, the scribes, the elders, the Pharisees, King Herod, Pontius Pilate, all set their minds to kill Jesus and be rid of him once and for all. In that group, you you had both the leaders of the church and the leaders of the civil world. You had the powers of this world combined. And they tried to find him guilty of some crime, but they could not. And so they resorted to mocking him. They spat on him. They beat him. They scourged him. They pounded nails into his hands and feet, and they crucified him. And when Jesus died, they all breathed a breath of relief, thinking they were finally rid of him. But still somewhat fearful, yet soldiers guard Christ's tombs, lest the disciples steal his body away, and the people think that his words had come true, that he had risen again from the dead on the third day. But not even death, not even death could keep Christ from reigning. The tomb could not contain him. The soldiers standing guard could not prevent him from rising again from the dead. And remember that these were the best attempts to be rid of the reign of Christ. The best and brightest lawyers tried to find out where Christ had broken the law. But all they could find was, this man is innocent. Not even false witnesses could bring a conviction. So they just resorted to killing him. They did not just kill him, they they crucified him. One of the most brutal ways imaginable to die. And they did so to ensure that no matter what, this man would die. That this man would be dead. But nothing can stop Jesus from reigning. Isn't that a wonderful truth for us as the people of God? Nothing can stop our Savior, our King, from reigning. Want to know why God laughs? God laughs because nothing can stop Him from doing what He has promised. God the Father has set His King on His holy hill of Zion. This is not just some king. This is God's king. And this is not just some hill. This is his holy hill of Zion. God God the Father has installed his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, upon this throne. And nobody can keep him from that throne or remove him from that throne. And so when you are tempted to be discouraged about the state of the church, the growing wickedness of the world, if you mourn over the depravity of the world around us, be encouraged that your king is reigning. Be encouraged that nothing can stop him from reigning. Be encouraged knowing that your Savior is saving you, that he is working the fullness of your salvation, and that there will be a multitude on that last day proclaiming the praises of God. The wicked 
of this world have done the worst they can possibly do. They killed Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And Christ simply rose again from the dead. It was this knowledge that gave the early church the boldness to proclaim Jesus Christ in the face of persecution. They knew that nothing, not even death, could stop their king. They heard the laughter of God at the futile attempts of the wicked and went boldly forth proclaiming salvation in Jesus. And God continues to laugh at the opposition of the wicked because he has declared the decree. And we need to know this decree. Psalm 2, verse 7 through 9 says, I will declare the the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. God has declared the decree. And he is not a man that he should lie or turn from his word. God's word is perfect. God's word is true. What he has said, he will perform. And what he has said is true. When Jesus Christ was baptized, God the Father spoke from heaven with a voice and said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And when Jesus Christ was transfigured on the mount, God the Father again spoke from heaven and said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. The decree that God the Father has promised his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, is a kingdom. He has declared that his Son would have the nations of the earth as his inheritance. And nothing, nothing will stop that from happening. Just as nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. So nothing can stop Christ from receiving the inheritance and the reward that has been promised him. Yes, many people may try to stop that from happening. States may pass legislation that limits the freedoms of churches. Pastors may get arrested and thrown in jail. Governments might try to destroy and kill the church. But ultimately, King Jesus reigns over it all. This is what Jesus declared to the disciples in Matthew 28. And Christ gave the the Great Commission. That was, in many respects, his coronation speech. It was his kingly speech. And in that that speech, Christ did not say, well, some authority has been given to me. Christ did not just say, well, I've been given authority over the angels, but, but not authority over men. Christ did not say, well, I've been given authority over the church, but not over the world. No, Christ said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. Christ rules over both the church and the governments of this world. And that authority to rule has been given to him by God the Father because Christ purchased redemption for the people of God. 
And with his authority, Christ will break the nations with a rod of iron. I think our tendency can be to recoil at language like that. It certainly is violent language. Breaking with a rod of iron is not pleasant. But this language is also the language of protection. A shepherd would use a rod to protect his sheep from wolves and bears. And so Christ protects his sheep, his church, with a rod of iron. The persecuted church need not fear the attacks of the enemy because Christ, their king, will protect them, not with with a flimsy reed, but he will protect them with a rod of iron. To know and realize that the suffering and the persecution that the church endures in this life is known by Christ. He sees it. And he loves his people. He will protect his people with a rod of iron. Now, the Lord does not promise necessarily physical protection, but he certainly promises spiritual protection. Christ gathers them into his fold and ensures that nothing, absolutely nothing, can separate them from his love. Not the, the fiercest and, and most raging persecution can separate the people of God from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Just as Christ rules and advances his kingdom with a rod of iron, Christ has also been pleased to give his people's people weapons with which to advance his kingdom. Christ is pleased to advance his kingdom through the means of his people using the weapons of God. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 3 through 6 says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God, for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ, and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. We have been given that mighty weapon of the word of God with which we advance the kingdom of God. Mighty weapon is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we know the beauty of that gospel. That Christ calls upon rebels. He calls upon us who were once enemies of him. To believe on his name. And we proclaim that gospel. Calling those who are destitute and lost in their sins. That there is indeed hope. That this king is your king. And he calls you to turn to him. Christ rules with a rod of iron. If you are in Christ, that rod will be used to protect you. But if you are not in Christ, that rod will be used to break you. If you are engaged in opposition to Christ this day, Christ calls you to come to him and find refuge in him. In Psalm 2, verse 10 through 12, we read, The calling to put your trust in Christ. 
Now therefore be wise, O kings, be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest you perish in the way, when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. There's much encouragement for us in these words. See, we have often opposed Christ. Such opposition may not have taken the form of advancing sinful legislation or or vocally saying, well, God doesn't exist. We have certainly opposed Christ in other ways. Rather than submitting to the commandments of our King, we have rebelled and done that which is sinful. We have chosen impurity over purity. We have chosen to, to pridefully and arrogantly hate our neighbor rather than to love him. We may not have persecuted the church. We have persecuted Christ himself. We have at times kissed him with a betraying kiss rather than a kiss of submission. We have said, I will outwardly serve Christ but in that time when nobody is watching, I will reject him. When I am accountable to, to no one but myself, I will go and sin. Perhaps we have betrayed Christ with the words we have said about him in front of our unbelieving co-workers. Perhaps... We have betrayed Christ with the words we have said in our own hearts about him. Yet even though we have foolishly rebelled against our king, he beckons us to return to him. He calls us to to put our trust in him, to kiss him when his wrath is kindled but a little. If you have opposed Christ in any day, in any way, come to him today. Put your trust in him, for you will be blessed by him. This king reigns, and he is powerful. He is all-powerful. And yet he calls you this day to turn in repentance and faith to him, so that he can shower you with mercy. He calls upon us rebels those who have broken his word, those who have broken his law, to turn to him. And he promises to bless us. And we will be blessed because he is the blessed man. Notice how verse 12 of Psalm 2 matches up beautifully with verse 1 of Psalm 1. Remember that both Psalm 1 and 2 create something of an introduction to the book of Psalms. They are both connected to each other. And that connection is found partly in that word blessed. The blessed man of Psalm 1 is this king. The blessed man of Psalm 1 is the king spoken of in Psalm 2. And because this king is blessed, 
He is able to then go and bestow blessing upon His people. Christ pours blessedness upon His willing subjects, those who trust in Him and serve Him with fear. If you argue that your sins are too great for Him to bless you, well, you are mistaken. If you say, my, my opposition to Christ has been too great, I have done horrible things in secret, I have said and done awful things in public, I cannot possibly be saved by this king. I deserve to be broken by his rod of iron. If you say that, well, I encourage you to look at the example of the Apostle Paul. Here was a man who who at one time in his life adamantly opposed both Christ and the church. He didn't just say bad things about Jesus Christ. He didn't just say bad things about the church. This man actively persecuted the church. He's the one who held the coats of those who went and and stoned Stephen to death. This was a man who who got letters from the governors so that he could go and, and arrest the Christians so that they too could be put to death. Paul hated Christ with a passion. Yet Paul was broken graciously by Christ. Paul fell upon that chief cornerstone and was broken by it. Paul was humbled by this great king and and that king bestowed blessedness upon Paul. That king said, you are mine. That king said, you are mine are mine. I will save you. You are one of my lambs. I will redeem you. You who were once an enemy, well, I died for you and purchased redemption for you. You are saved. And so, let us be wise, beloved. Let us be wise, in our dealings with this king. Let us kiss him this day and every day. Let us serve him with fear and rejoice in him with trembling. Let us find in him a refuge because there is no refuge from him. The only refuge is in him. You will not be able to escape his wrath. On The last great day, Revelation speaks of the wicked, those who have not turned to Christ, as calling upon the mountains to fall down upon them. They're trying to find some refuge from Jesus Christ. But beloved, the only refuge from Christ is, is in Christ. The only refuge is when you put your trust in Him. There are many discouragements that the church can endure. But the greatest discouragement that you will ever face is to be without a Savior. 
And so find such a Savior in this King. Find your Savior in the Lord Jesus Christ, who reigns on high, who has accomplished salvation, of whom God the Father has said, this is my beloved Son. Let us find in Christ a beautiful and wondrous Savior. So in conclusion, Psalm 2 appears at the beginning of the book of Psalms to provide us great gospel encouragement. In a world that rejects Christ and wages war against him, we are to be comforted knowing that such opposition is fruitless. Christ will be victorious even as he has been victorious. Christ laughs at the futile attempts of wicked men and nations to destroy the church. God has declared the decree, and there's no going back from that decree. But in that greatest discouragement of our own sinfulness, Christ is there for us to put our trust in. We fall upon him. And that blessed man, blesses us beyond measure. So as we go through Psalm each month, let us be reminded of these truths contained in both Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. Let us see how the whole book of Psalms points us to the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let us come and meditate upon him. And he will surely bless us. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, you have given us your Son. You have declared that decree that you are my Son. This day have I begotten you. Lord, we rejoice that you reign over all things, that no matter what we go through in this life, you are reigning over it all, that no matter what persecution the church might endure, you are the one who sees it, you know it, and you are reigning on high, bringing all people and governments and nations and countries into subjection under your feet. Lord, We thank you that in you we have a merciful and a gracious Savior. That even though your wrath burns against the wicked, you call upon those same wicked people to turn to you. Lord, cause us ever to turn to you. Help us to find refuge in you that we might know your salvation and the blessedness of being found in you. We pray in Christ's name, our Savior. Amen.